Hi, and welcome to What's Up Tybee. I'm Sandy McLeod. You've probably heard people mention the Tybee Bomb, or you've seen those t-shirts and hats that have a logo saying Tybee Bomb Squad, and maybe you don't know what it's referring to. Or perhaps you do know some of the story of what happened off the Tybee Coast on February 5, 1958. That was the day when the U.S. Air Force lost a 7,600-pound Mark 15 nuclear bomb after two planes collided just off the coast. My guest, Savannah native Mickey Yeomans, has vivid memories about that incident that he's going to share with us today. Just a programming note, this interview was done with a Zoom call, and you'll hear some very vocal birds chirping at time in the program because his office has glass windows and some very loud grackles and mockingbirds wanted to put in their two cents worth. Mickey has long ties to the island. If you've been around a while, you might remember his uncle, Jack Yeomans, who served 18 years on Tybee City Council before his death in 2012. Mickey has spent countless hours fishing the waters off of our coast, and that's where he was just a few days after the accident where he saw with his own eyes military and government officials who were trying to find that bomb. I was born and raised out at Pinpoint, which is where towards out past Bethesda, and we would be in the boat all the time. I spent every weekend with my dad pretty much in a boat, and we went to all of the islands, and we had lots of friends at Tybee, and we would go to Tybee for all kinds of things, crab boils, oyster roast, just to go see people, you know, to do things, and... You know, we went there to fish a lot, fish off the beach and fish off of Wausau Island and Ossabaw Island and the whole coast. I was a coast kid (laughs) when I grew up. And, uh, you know, I still am, actually. We were always fishing and going places. And I think I don't remember it was and I was eight years old. It was 1958. And my dad, we were supposed to go fishing the following the coming weekend. And I think it was a I don't remember what day, but sometime in the middle of the week before we were supposed to go, and it was in February, and we were going to go trout fishing. We were hearing people talk about an airplane crash and uh, maybe lost the bomb. And this was just with because we had connections with the military folks. My grandma was secretary to the general of the 8th Air Force in World War II. So, you know, we knew people, and they were just talking about it. It was no big thing. So... We got in the boat on Saturday and down at the old landing and, and down at Montgomery. And it was a long ride back past Isle of Hope and out to the Bull River and out the Bull River. And we were going and going. And when we got there and we turned off the intercoastal, there was like, looked like the entire Navy was there. <laughs> Boats everywhere and uh, all kind of stuff and helicopters and off in the horizon. We can never really get past like Wilmington Island to right there where the uh, dock is now. And we got kind of poked along the marsh and then a boat came over and said we had to turn around and leave. Uh, that there had been an accident and that no civilians were allowed out there. So we said, oh, no. And so we'll have to fish somewhere else. <laughs> you know, so my dad turned the boat around and we went back where we come from and went around and went to the uh, south end of Wausau Island. There was no patrols down there, but you you could see off in the ocean, there was all kind of you know, boats out there. There was, you know, different kinds of boats and ships, big ships and things like that that were looking for it. Those were the days before Facebook, Nextdoor, or Google, where you could get rumors or facts about what was going on. 
So I asked Mickey if people were worried or overly concerned about the incident, and also if they were given much information on what had happened. At that time in that day, no, we didn't know. We just knew it might have been a bomb. But, you know, over the years, a lot of just regular explosive had been recovered. I mean, I even heard that there was so they used to do bombing exercises and all this kind of stuff went on. And, you know, we just thought, well, it must be like a big old 500 pound bomb or something. Maybe they dropped it and they're afraid in shallow water, afraid somebody's going to hit. Who knows? You know, but we had no details at that point in time that I remember that day that we were out there or even with a couple of weeks later after what happened then was i think it was six weeks or seven weeks later they dropped another one in south carolina not far from here i didn't know anything about bombs then but what we had heard and it was actually made the news it had exploded just the the tnt and blown up a building on a farm and that one got a lot of attention because it had blown something up and it had scattered the nuclear components around and they went over and they was in the news for a long time after but back then you had three tv stations and maybe some radio but that was about it and i mean and you know that news only came on (laughs) a little bit you didn't get to see it you know 24 7 like you do now so it was a distant thing. And I know my grandma was concerned. We'd go to Sunday dinner with her go to church. And she would talk about it more than anybody at that point in time, you know. Just five weeks after that bomb was lost off of our coast, another accident happened in Mars Bluff, South Carolina. That's when the Air Force accidentally released a nuclear weapon from a B-47 bomber. Fortunately, it did not have its nuclear core when it fell, But six people were injured and some buildings were damaged. So government authorities shifted their focus to that situation. And people around here just decided it couldn't be that big of a deal since officials seemed to just let it go. Mickey forgot about it, too, until many years later when he had started producing documentaries on planes and pilots. That's when he came across a random box of papers that caught his attention and piqued his interest again. I think after the the incident in South Carolina when I was still eight years old and all of the press and everything went to that and then there was sort of a disappearance of all of the things here and I remember that and everybody said, oh, well, it's over, it's done, no big deal. Uh, and there was a thing that came out that said that it was not a, a don't worry, it's not a weapon, you know, any of that, don't worry, don't worry. And so everybody just said, okay, that everybody, the government says it's not to worry, we won't worry. So then through the years, I mean, I, I was an artist. I grew up in the sign business with my granddaddy and my dad, my uncle. And, and then I started doing photography and I had companies and I traveled all over the world with a TV camera. And uh, we started doing a series with a colonel that I had met. And we were doing working all over in Europe and working here. And we did a thing that was... Uh, called The Challenge of Flight, which was about a 17 to 20 show series. And we were get all of the uh, information. One of our partners was a fighter pilot and um, still in the Air Force. And we had access to all a lot of archives and things. That, and we would make these shows based on facts and all of the stuff that we got from different archives. And I worked at the 8th Air Force Museum. I helped put that together. And I did a lot of the video work there. And we went to Air Force Archives. So I was like well-versed in doing that kind of thing. I'd been doing it for years. One day we were sitting in the National Security Archives and they're looking at newly declassified stuff, just trying to come 
come up with ideas for shows. And there was a piece of papers for laying there on the floor. And the funny, I mentioned this, that my partner, Doug Keeney, was, uh, he was the executive producer. I was the producer director, but he, re- he we were talking on the phone the other day and he was laughing about me going, what, Savannah? And I was sitting there on the on the floor, you know, looking at all these stacks of boxes of paperwork. And there was this thing and it had the words of that on it. I picked it up and it was a thing that was written in 1966. And it was written to the, I believe, the Secretary of Defense from the Secretary of Air Force or some kind of thing. And what it was, was a confirmation that they had asked, the government had asked, for how many complete weapons had been lost and not recovered? That was the question. And the answer was, there are two. And guess what? One of them was in Savannah. And it was right there on the paper. And I'm like looking at this thing going, whoa, are you kidding? You know, really? Okay. (laughs) Nikki's films about planes and pilots gave him quite an education on bombs and bombers, which eventually led him to speak with the two men who were involved the night the Tybee bomb was dropped into the dark waters off of our coast. I didn't even know what a complete weapon was. I was thinking, well, I mean, you know, you sort of think they all are and go through all this stuff and you read all these things. And we did a show about the guys that were involved called Ground Zero that were the guys that were involved and actually the guinea pigs for nuclear testing in the desert. And I got to know a lot of them and they had all these contacts with different people all over the place. And basically I was inundated with material coming out of that archive since they actually reclassified it is what I understand. We made the shows and we started started working on this one we started looking for people involved and we found through from air force folks uh the fighter pilot whose plane had run into the bomber and the bomber pilot and we went to their respective houses and interviewed them on camera and they were wonderful people i mean they were amazing just listening to what they had gone through. We, we talked to them about their whole life as pilots, not just the bomb, you know. We wanted to know what it was really like to be a bomber pilot, what it was really like to be a fighter pilot and pretend that you're attacking a bomber coming from Russia and, you know, all of these things that go on that, you know, that they have to do as a quote-unquote job, you know. <laughs> Most people, I mean, unbelievable what they did. Oddly enough, we're born and raised about 100 miles apart from each other over in Alabama and had never met till they had the mid-air collision. <laughs> Military missions that were done in the 50s sound pretty frightening considering the way they were conducted at the time. And it's truly amazing that the accident that happened back then didn't turn out a whole lot worse than it did. The bombers were on, had been out on practice mission, you know, releasing bombs and stuff. The deal was back then that bombers carried complete weapons in case the Russians launched an attack. They could go to war. They could hit a tanker and go to war. You know, that was part of the, the whole process of it. It wasn't like, oh, they're gonna, we're gonna go back and land and get the bomb and then we're gonna go. Oh no, they're flying around with them. Right. And everywhere they went, they would fly and do these long range missions all up to the Arctic and back and all around. And that's what they did. And then the fighters were doing the same thing. The fighters would use our bombers as targets and they would practice. And they had these zones where they would be in and be out, all those kind of things. And so that was what was happening the night of the uh, collision. Colonel Richardson was the bomber pilot and he had two guys on the plane with him, the bombardier and the co-pilot. 
And uh, Clarence Stewart, he was the fighter pilot. And they were flying out of different bases, and they were doing coordinated Cold War maneuvers, basically, where the bombers would go out and pretend to bomb, and the fighters, they would go find bombers and make passes on them and not shoot them down, but because, you know, they were just practicing back and forth. But what came out in the interview was that you didn't know until a certain point at night, was it the enemy or not? And if they were in a certain zone, then they were considered safe and you could practice. But that night, something happened on the equipment that was on Clarence Stewart's F-86 fighter. They found the box, they realized it had malfunctioned, and he was cleared of all wrongdoing. He's lucky they didn't all die. It's just a miracle that they lived. It's hard to imagine the stress and fear those pilots and crew involved in the situation must have faced that night as they dealt with the crisis in damaged aircraft, hauling a bomb, and knowing they had their own lives and the lives of those on the ground in their hands. What happened first was when the fighter pilot hit, started down to crash, and he ejected. And the plane crashed in Georgia, and he landed in a swamp in South Carolina. Meanwhile, the bomber's still flying around. And they made three attempts to land with the weapon, and they couldn't do it. And they were afraid that because of the damage to the aircraft, if they did land, the bomb would ignite, it would blow up the TNT part. They went out to the ocean. They turned around, they started coming back in, and how they landed that thing, based on the photographs I saw, I have no idea, because, like, the wings hanging off, the, you know, all the stuff, you know. What the pilot of the B-47 said was, uh, we went as far out as we could go and think we are going to still make it back to land to jettison the weapon. And he said, we were in bad shape. We just wanted to get away from any buildings, any houses, in case we crashed, until we could get on the final approach. Today, there's lots of articles and documentaries and plenty of information online about the Tybee bomb. And papers related to the event are more available than ever and declassified, so it's easy to get answers to most questions about the incident. Except for one, where is it? The bomb, you know, the, where it's located has been the great mystery. I mean, I've got papers in our documents that they said, this is where we put it, this is where we dropped it. This is what we did. You know, if you look at a map and you look at where the runway is and if you follow that line out into the ocean and you go to the south of it, then they made a left turn and came in. You can sort of get an idea of where it might possibly be. I mean, it's in somewhere out in that area. That's the big picture. I've been out in uh, boats with all kind of metal detectors looking. We had a guy who was a world renowned. He found stuff like on the bottom of you know, the deepest parts of the ocean. He was a guy that found stuff, right? The thing he asked us, he said, you know what you need to do? You need to go talk to all of the people that are around there, the local people that were in the area at the time, anybody that you know. And so I had a, several personal friends that were shrimp boat captains, and they were kids like me when this happened. But over the years, they worked on boat with other shrimp boat captains and different people like that. And there was one who said specifically, they dragged up a huge, they didn't know what it was. They snagged this thing well south of Tabi. They pulled it up, pulled it up, pulled it up and got it up. And then the, the gear broke, tore the net basically off the outrigger. You know, with the, the tickle chain was what was holding it. And, you know, they just went on. You know, they, they got their net and went back to the dock to fix the net. And that was pretty much it. And, like, nobody had ever said anything to me about it. And when I went down to do the interviews down there, most people didn't want to talk about it. 
my friend Rudy, Captain Rudy, he and I were good buddies. I grew up with him. We used to hitchhike Tybee. He never told me about it back then. He just told me they'd hit a big snag. He never said anything about it being them pulling up this big thing and seeing that it was a bomb. And reason was they didn't want, they don't want people to think that their shrimp might be contaminated. I mean, you know, I mean, if, if you were a, you're like, well, we have these nuclear shrimp in Georgia, right? <laughs> so, and this all came out and I went to the fisherman's co-op when I was doing the show and interviewed a bunch of people. I mean, I knew most of them personally grew up with them and, uh, and they're telling me all this stuff and how they used to drag around that spot. They, every, nobody would drag there. There's a lot of conjecture about where it was. And this is out. I mean, it's out. It's in the ocean part of the out, you know, I mean, you can see the land, but it's not you know, in a river by any stretch like of Like five miles out, that far out? Not quite. Two or um, three. Yeah, yeah. Through the years, Mickey has done a lot of research about the Tybee bomb and interviewed numerous people who were involved in the accident and still gets calls from journalists and others who are interested in the story. But one thing he refuses to do is to make the story a bigger, more sensational one than it truly is, which is what many filmmakers and writers seem to want him to do when they come calling. We went back with another group of people. I went most recently with a group from England who has done a lot of research on these things all over the world, and they were going to do a thing. And we had a boat out there that had a certain type of sensor magnetometers and things and we were getting pings in a lot of the points where it might be you know it comes down to gosh here's this thing and it's there in the ocean and why don't we do something about it but what we found out is if there was a real search for it and they went and said they were going to get it and there it is and the reason to do that would be the nuclear capsule was on board which it was because there's a letter that says that it was and that was six years after the, or a little bit longer than after the actual collision, is that you have to evacuate a huge, I can't remember how many miles it is, but it's pretty much, you know, the east side of Savannah would have to go. (laughs) And everybody would have to get up and go while they did the work. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. You know, all I know is what I've read. (laughs) I'm not an expert. And the nuclear capsule, if it's not inside the TNT inserted, it's not going to, TNT is not going to blow up and turn it nuclear. So there's not going to be a nuclear explosion through all of the years that I've been dealing with it and looking at it and talking to people is that could it possibly be a source of, you know, radiation and, and, and pollution? I don't know. Every time I talk to people from all the universities and they say, well, it's probably sinking because of the weight of it. And I'm like, okay, well, it's sinking. Oh, great. Well, there's aquifers down there, you know, I mean, <laughs> What? And I mean, that's probably far-fetched and people say I'm nuts. Okay. But it's just something that I've always thought about. I think the end result is that's my biggest concern. The hardest thing to do with this story from day one was to tell the real truth. And that's what I've always tried to do. And that's what we did in our series. And and then I had a group of people came from all over the world. And they wanted me to say that I was afraid that the bomb was going to blow up and go nuclear and blow the city up. I would never say that that bomb is going to go nuclear because based on what Colonel told me that flew it, that the capsule was not inserted in the weapon. He hadn't given the order for that. They were on practice training missions. And they didn't insert the nuclear capsule into the TNT unless they were going to war. So it's not going to go nuclear. 
I've always worked with the stuff I've done for television. I've strived to tell the truth and make sure that it was documented and it wasn't just something that I thought so I could get more eyes on the green. You know, I don't agree with all of that. There's a lot of people that have written a lot of things and said a lot of things. And it always is just either, oh, it's really not there or, oh, it's going to go nuclear. It's, it's not the down the road, center of the line truth about what the real deal is because it is there, but it's not going to go nuclear. A big thank you to Mickey Yeomans for spending time with us. If you'd like to talk to Mickey about the bomb or learn about some of the programs he's produced about it or other plane and pilot documentaries, he would be happy to hear from you. He lives in Richmond Hill, and you're welcome to reach out to him at his Gmail address. That's MickeyYeomans at gmail.com, M-I-C-K-E-Y-Y-O-U-M-A-N-S at gmail.com. Also, I found a great article online called The Saga of the Tyvee Bomb. It was published in a magazine called Garden and Gun. Yeah, seriously, that's the name of the publication, Garden and Gun. It has some fascinating details about what those pilots went through that night after the accident, and also specifics about the fears people had of Soviets getting hold of the bomb and more. Thanks for listening. If you would like to give me suggestions about shows you'd like to hear, I would love to hear from you. This show is written, edited, and produced by me, Sandy McLeod. You can reach me at sandymcleod at gmail.com, S-A-N-D-Y-M-C-C-L-O-U-D at gmail.com, or check us out on Facebook under What's Up Tybee. And keep in mind, in my real life, I'm a real estate associate broker with Century 21 Fox Properties with over 20 years experience, and I would be happy to help you if you want to purchase or sell a property in this area. See you next time on What's Up Tybee, and no matter where you're at, enjoy your life and live like you're on Tybee time.